As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Coaston. An early draft of a Supreme Court decision overturning two critical abortion rights cases has leaked. The 98-page opinion by Justice Samuel Alito strikes down two landmark cases, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The draft is not a final decision, but understandably, it sparked a lot of outrage, particularly on the left. On Monday night, protesters gathered outside the Supreme Court in D.C. As a woman, I'm terrified. It feels like decades worth of progress is just going down the drain because justices wanted to. We're all out here tonight because everyone here is just as confused as I am, just as frustrated, and we're not going to go down without a fight. I mean, I think the draft is super exciting. It doesn't just poke holes at Casey or Roe. It doesn't just kind of nip at the heels, it actually uh, would overturn both of those, send the authority all the way back to the states like it should. Chief Justice John Roberts has issued a statement saying the draft is authentic, but that, quote, it does not represent a decision by the court or the final position of any member on the issues in the case. But even with that caveat, the draft is pretty absolutist in its knockdown of Roe, and it's perhaps calling into question of a host of privacy issues. It seems to be a sign of where things are going. With me to discuss what this means and what comes next are my Times Opinion colleagues, Jesse Wegman, who covers the Supreme Court for the editorial board, and columnist Michelle Goldberg, who has written extensively on reproductive rights. So we're going to talk a little bit about how Politico even got a hold of this draft, but I want to talk about the substance of the opinion. Jesse, briefly, what does this draft say? The opinion itself strikes down uh, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the 1992 opinion that pretty significantly cut back on uh, the right to an abortion but preserved the fundamental freedom to choose to terminate a pregnancy. It strikes them down really in quite sweeping and certain terms because, among other things, as Justice Alito writes in the draft, there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution says nothing about abortion at all. And also because, as he put it, there is no long-standing right to have an abortion in this country until we got to the late, you know, 1960s, early 1970s with the ruling in Roe in the first place. So it's about as worst-case scenario as you could get for those of us who believe in protecting a, a woman's right to choose what happens inside her own body, but it's not unexpected. So there was talk that maybe the court would set a standard for viability or something narrower than what this decision appears to look like. And I think a lot of conservatives have argued that all this court is doing is sending the decision back to the states. But is that how you're reading this? Is that what the intention here is? That's literally what the court is doing. 
Yes, it sends the the decision back to the states. It allows states to ban abortion outright if they choose. It allows states to legalize abortion if they so choose. Most states, I think, if not all states, are on the record uh, as doing one or the other of those things or regulating it uh, somewhere in between. But I think I will say, and I'm sure Michelle has a lot to say about this as well, that we all know this isn't the real end game because there's a whole movement behind the anti-abortion movement that is this, you know, so-called fetal personhood movement, which attempts to vest fetuses with the rights of born people. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a very uh, strong effort nationwide to not just send this matter back to the states, but to make it difficult for states to legalize abortion at all. Michelle, again, this is a draft decision. A decision has not yet actually been made. But what would this mean for people seeking abortions? Whose access is likely to be most restricted? So I agree with Jesse that the ultimate end game is a nationwide abortion ban, although it's not something that's going to happen you know, imminently as long as we have a Democratic president. I think that there will be a debate if there's ever a Republican trifecta again, which there's likely to be about whether they should get rid of the filibuster in order to enact a total abortion ban. But for the time being, if this is the decision that comes down in June, you're going to see abortion banned in the 13 states that have what are called trigger laws. So these are laws that basically say if and when a row is overturned, abortion is illegal in this state. There's a bunch of other states that have still their pre-row abortion bans on the books, and those could start to be enforced. So The estimates I've seen are that somewhere between 24 and 26 states, abortion will be banned. So in blue states, abortion will still be available, although what's going to happen is it's going to become harder to access just as a matter of crowding. You know, kind of every state with functioning clinics are likely to be overrun. The other thing that I think is going to happen is that, you know, women who have miscarriages are going to come under a lot of suspicion. Maybe not all women, you know, maybe not sort of white middle-class women with private doctors, but a woman who shows up in the hospital having a miscarriage, it's going to be, what did you do to cause this? You know, it's, it's just going to be a mess, again, because so many of these decisions are going to be left to individual prosecutors and also because doctors are going to have to operate under, you know, sort of worst case scenario of how this legislation can be interpreted. It's also worth talking about what Jesse said about these fetal personhood laws, because these have already been enacted in many, many states. The idea is to sort of set a precedent to fetal personhood that would make it easier to overturn Roe versus Wade or easier to kind of conceptualize the fetus as a distinct person in the law and in the culture. And the reason I think this is really, really important is because before Roe, by and large, women were not going to prison for clandestine abortions. They would sometimes be threatened with prosecution in order to get them to testify against doctors or against abortion providers. But, you know, abortion was the crime. The crime wasn't murder. And so we now have a very different situation after like 49 years of of arguing about fetal personhood, of arguing that abortion is kind of a type of homicide. So you already are seeing there's a bunch of cases where women have been prosecuted under fetal homicide laws or fetal endangerment laws for, you know, doing drugs while they were pregnant, for attempting suicide while they were pregnant. And it's only been Roe versus Wade that has stopped prosecutors from prosecuting women who 
have abortions, right? They've always had to have an exception in these fetal endangerment and fetal homicide laws for abortion because of Roe versus Wade. But that in a few months, that likely changes. And so we already have some intimations of of what this is going to look like. I want to back up a little bit also, because I think that there's been a lot of doom saying and doom scrolling going on online, particularly talking about what this could mean, that like this will obviously mean that Loving versus Virginia is gone, Obergefell is gone. But there's a whole paragraph of the draft decision that ties Casey to a bunch of decisions, including Loving versus Virginia, which struck down laws against interracial marriage. The case Skinner versus Oklahoma, which was about the right not to be sterilized without consent. Fascinating case. Very disturbing. But also discusses uh, such cases as Lawrence v. Texas, which ended sodomy bans, and Obergefell versus Hodges, which instilled marriage equality across the land. And as someone who now has been married for seven years, huge fan. So I think that my concern here is that a lot of people who are very concerned about this draft are tying together a lot of different pieces here. And I do not want to be wrong about this. I do not want every Cassandra online to be correct. But I don't think that this decision is the first step to winding back every civil rights decision we've ever had. There's been a march for life every January for my entire life and before. There's no march against loving versus Virginia. <laughs> not yet. And so, but I, well, I, that's the thing. It's like, I'm not sure. I am, but, I'm but Jean, on team. I think that you, yeah. I think that you're, I think that we shouldn't lump all these things together, right? I mean, yes, I don't think that this is the end of every single civil right, obviously. I don't think that there is a constituency in this country for repealing loving versus Virginia. Obergefell, I think, might be a little bit more vulnerable, especially because it's very explicitly, I mean, Jesse can correct me if I'm wrong, but based on the same legal reasoning as as Rowan Casey. Well, so Obergefell, the, the, the right to same-sex marriage is partly based on substantive due process in the 14th Amendment. It's also based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which I think is a much stronger and firmer foundation for rights like these, the rights of individual autonomy, bodily integrity, that sort of thing. And I, you know, I've made the argument, as have many people, that equal protection would be a stronger foundation for the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy, mm-hmm. just as it is the basis of the right to marry the person of your choosing. Okay, so so fair enough. I would say that the one thing that I think is most immediately endangered besides legal abortion is some forms of birth control, possibly plan B. I mean, on the one hand, you think there's probably not very much political appetite right. to roll like, and back. There, act- there have been a lot of support. I mean, I'm, I'm going to put this is where we get into the wiggly nature of the numbers here, because there are a lot of conservatives who are like, yeah, make birth control over the counter. Like the number of people who are really aimed at Griswold versus Connecticut seems comparatively small. That doesn't mean they couldn't do it. Anything apparently can happen, but it seems small. I think that that is mostly right. But I also think that you constantly see people in the anti-abortion movement trying to redefine kind of common contraceptives as abortifacients and sort of wall them off from things like condoms. And I just I think that this is really important language from the ruling itself. It says laws regulating abortion, quote, must be sustained if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interests. And those interests include, it continues, quote, respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development. So it definitely gives the okay, you know, to 
total abortion bans and could possibly be interpreted to include some sort forms of contraception. And to be clear, uh, that language that Michelle just quoted in legal speak, rational basis is the lowest bar that a government needs to clear in order to get judicial approval of, of a law that it passes. So when the court uses those magical words, rational basis, it's essentially a green light for governments, state or federal, to pass whatever laws they want on the subject. Uh, only the most egregious laws that have zero basis in any conceivable legitimate objective will be struck down. But it's generally understood as saying, go for it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. What does this mean now? Because I think that this puts new pressure on Congress. Senator Bernie Sanders and others have demanded Democrats use their majority and the filibuster to codify Roe. However, without the filibuster, that seems as if Republicans got the trifecta in 2024. They could just turn around and have a national abortion ban because it seems as if this is one of those issues where polling popularity of a total ban on abortion has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not people would try to instill one. And you've heard from Senator Susan Collins saying repeatedly that Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch told her privately that they considered Roe to be established precedent. Yeah, she sounds but very concerned. Clearly, yeah. yeah, I mean, the concern level has gone to troubled. I am curious to see, like, how should Congress respond, Michelle? And how do you think Congress will respond? My own feeling about the filibuster is that if Republicans have a chance to pass a total abortion ban by getting rid of the filibuster. I would put money on them doing it. So I'm not that concerned about Democrats getting rid of the filibuster and then having it come back to bite them when Republicans use it against them. So, I mean, look, I think Congress should get rid of the filibuster for this and many other reasons and pass a national law enshrining abortion rights. The chances of that happening seem to me to be infinitesimally small. So you know, kind of demanding it has the feel to me of sort of banging your head against the wall. The kind of politics of this leak are a little bit are, are a little bit ambiguous, right? I mean, right. the right is assuming that it was leaked by somebody supportive of abortion rights. That may well be true, you know, that it was leaked as a sort of warning about what they're going to do. But I don't know that it really helps Democrats or pro-choice people that much to have this two months early in order to prepare, you know, especially when the language of the 
draft opinion itself talks about how they're kind of impervious to the um, political consequences. And so if they actually do amend it now, it will seem as if they've somehow buckled. And in some ways, the leak of this document has allowed some of the discussion to be about the leak instead of about the end of Roe versus Wade. It sort of muddles the whole thing instead of just like the earthquake of headlines that say Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. You have this slightly indeterminate situation. And again, I have no no real opinion about who did it because I just don't know. But it seems like it could just as easily have been leaked by somebody on the right who wanted to sort of lock in support for this very strident opinion before people that they see as kind of squishy or watered it down. I, I just want to add on to that. I agree with Michelle. We don't know uh, the identity of the leaker. Uh, apparently, the Chief Justice John Roberts has called for an investigation into this, uh, though it's unclear what law exactly would have been broken. But I do want to talk about the leak. I do think it it represents a really shocking breakdown of the norms at the court. To get a full draft opinion, fully footnoted, is really something I've never heard of before. And I think it reflects a growing politicization at the court, which is absolutely the intent, I think, of Senate Republicans in particular, who have spent the last six years especially engineering the court precisely for this moment, starting with... Which I'm so interested in because you're seeing conservatives responding with this weird, it's the energy of the dog that catches the car. Yeah, on Fox News, somebody was just like, the sky isn't going to fall. And it's like, what do you mean the sky isn't going to fall? You got exactly what you wanted. There's a lot of energy that is, one, um, I think someone did some math at Fox News this morning, mentioned the leak more than they mentioned what was leaked, which to me... I've been alive for nearly 35 years. The anti-abortion movement has been a movement aiming to end abortion for longer than I have been alive. This is the goal. This is the end point. They did it. Woo! And I'm so curious by this energy of like, we're very mad at the leaker. Here, we don't even want to talk about what they leaked, even though this would be the crowning achievement of a movement that's been around for longer than I've been alive. Look, I mean... I do want to talk about the court as an institution here, right? So one angle to come at this is from the angle of the leak and how it reflects a, you know, an institutional erosion that we're seeing in, all over the country at both the state and federal levels. And I think that's a real concern and I think we should pay attention to it. But I also think there is an institutional point here about the court itself and the makeup of the court. This opinion, this decision, when it comes down, as with so many other decisions of the last couple of years and of the decades going forward, are purely the result of the makeup of this court and nothing else. Nothing about the law has changed. Nothing about the facts on the ground have changed. It is about who is on the court. And that is why Mitch McConnell held a seat hostage to get the man he wanted on the court rather than the person that Barack Obama would have appointed, who almost certainly would have upheld the right to an abortion. That is why when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died so painfully close to the election, the Republicans scrambled like bats out of hell to get Amy Coney Barrett onto the court uh, so that they would have a solid five-member majority, at least five-member majority, to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think we just can't let that out of our sights. The makeup of the court is the central deciding factor in every decision that gets made by the Supreme Court. Michelle, what do you think the political fallout of this decision will be? Do you think that this plays into the midterms at all? I'm curious whether you think it will have an impact or if, as some, I think, have argued, that the people who care the most about this issue 
or are the most outward about this issue generally live in states where abortion access is less challenged. I know there's a ton of abortion activism taking place in the South and elsewhere, but the people who are the maddest about it are people who might already live in places where their rights might not be infringed upon. I don't think we can predict. I mean, I know that Democrats and um, pro-choice activists have been sort of hoping and assuming that the overturning of Roe would create a big backlash. I mean, I feel like in the run-up to this, the movement has felt sort of listless. You know, a lot of people are burned out. They're exhausted. They're in despair. There's been much, much more energy on the right in recent months. And people, you know, assumed and hoped that that would change once Roe versus Wade was overturned. Um, Whether it actually will, I mean, I think for some people, it certainly will. For some people, this is going to be a wake-up call. I think people in swing states, you know, some of them are going to be quite shocked when, you know, abortion in their states becomes illegal. Because I've heard pollsters say that, you know, a lot of people just didn't believe that Roe versus Wade really was in danger, maybe in part because so many of us have been warning for so long that it's been in danger. So I think there will be some of that. And I think that the place where I would suspect it will have the most political impact is it will make things like total abortion bans, you know, without rape and incest and um, health of the mother exemptions, very live issues. Yeah, I'm so curious about that, because, again, this has been the carrot waved in front of social conservatives and the Republican Party writ large for 50 years. So there's been a lot of absolutism discussed among people who are opposed to abortion, particularly on the right, that they are well aware does not poll well. Jane, the entire Republican platform for the last several decades has been winning on things that don't poll well. I mean, this is the essence of uh, conservative rule right now. It is a fundamentally minoritarian rule. The Democratic candidate has won, the popular vote has won more votes for president than the Republican candidate in seven of the last eight elections. And yet we have a six to three supermajority of conservatives on the Supreme Court. It's an astonishing sleight of hand that has worked to put uh, Republican and conservative, although I use that word advisedly because nothing about what they're doing these days is conserving anything. It's actually quite radical. It's how these lawmakers have gotten power and then it's how they wield power is explicitly contrary to the wishes of a majority of Americans. Researchers of democracy and and comparative democracy have found that again and again that curbs on women's rights are correlated with democratic backsliding and that the two move hand in hand, that when women's rights are more restricted, more reduced, you have more backsliding in uh, democratic practices. And I think we're seeing that happen here. We're seeing these curbs on women's rights at the same time as we're seeing backsliding in democracy. Majority rule is the way that representative democracy works. And when you undermine that, you undermine representative democracy. My only pushback on that, I think that this is where this gets complicated, is I I did a great deal of back-looking through conservative media archives. I mean, this is something that always gets me, is that when you have the polling, you use the polling. When you don't have the polling, you pretend the polling doesn't exist. And on issues such as marriage equality, they had the polling in 2004. That's why it became this massive wedge issue in 2004 in my home state of Ohio. So I think that majoritarianism is sometimes good and sometimes horrifyingly bad. This is all happening really fast. What don't we know right now? This, is, again, is a draft opinion, but I'm curious as to what you're looking out for in the coming weeks ahead of the final Dobbs decision. 
And what does this mean for the court writ large? Because I think that there's been a lot of talk about like, oh, this will undermine the legitimacy of the court. But I think that you see every decision the court makes seemingly undermines its legitimacy to someone. Well, I don't think that's entirely right, Jane. First, I'll say I don't think this is all happening very quickly. I'll say it's been happening slowly for decades. (laughs) You know, right. That's a good point. The the anti-abortion movement has been crystal clear about its intent for decades now. But I will say about this question of legitimacy. Look, you know, this came up just a few weeks ago with the question of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Virginia Thomas, who is a a very high profile and and aggressive political activist, a hard right political activist who was involved in the January 6th uh, rally and who has lots of connections, disturbingly close connections in many cases with parties uh, who come before her husband's court. And the issue over whether, you know, her texts with the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, surrounding the weeks of the election and uh, the January 6th insurrection should force her husband to recuse out of a perceived conflict of interest were very real questions. And I think they get at the heart of this the issue of legitimacy is that the court is an extremely fragile institution in American governance. Its legitimacy derives entirely entirely from the public's acceptance that it is a fair and neutral arbiter or that it attempts to be a fair and neutral arbiter. When the people don't have that confidence in the court, it loses its legitimacy. And then, you know, all bets are off. So I don't think it's fair to say that anytime the court rules in a way that upsets some people, they say, oh, the court is illegitimate. I'll tell you what has led me to feel that this is an illegitimate court is what Senate Republicans led by Mitch McConnell have done over the last six years to stack this court explicitly for the purpose of overturning Roe v. Wade and and a whole other slew of rulings that they've been frothing at the mouth to get through for many, many years, in some cases, decades. And what's happening to get to those rulings is the overturning of established precedents, as here with Roe v. Wade, a nearly 50-year-old precedent now, that nobody was having trouble implementing, that there was no question the American public had changed in its feelings about whether a woman should have the right to decide what happens inside her own body. I think it's the numbers currently are around 80 percent of Americans feel that, at least in some circumstances, women should have the right to have an abortion. So, you know, overturning a precedent with no basis, no grounds of, uh, along the lines of what the court generally relies on to consider overturning precedent is a real blow to the stability of the law and the legitimacy of the body that interprets it uh, finally. So I think the overturning of Roe v. Wade, if it does indeed happen, and you know, I think all signs point to that being the case, is going to be one of the most significant blows to this court's legitimacy in the eyes of a whole swath of Americans, not just those who are openly pro-choice. Michelle, I'm curious to hear what you think about what are you looking, what are you looking out for? Where are you feeling about this right now? I am, I mean, what I'm feeling about this is really bereft because, I mean, you know, again, I I guess I knew this was coming intellectually, but, you know, the idea that my daughter is going to grow up in a world with fewer rights than I had is something that's, you know, it, it like makes me really heartsick. And I'm curious about what sort of, if any, kind of social changes this inaugurates, because I just cannot imagine a situation in which, I mean, women obviously don't already have in this country full equality, but it just seems to me that equality kind of cannot exist 
under this degree of regulation. You know, when sort of anyone's uterus is a potential crime scene, when people are subject to this level of, you know, surveillance and and control, again, both people who might need and choose abortions, but also people who probably think that this doesn't apply to them. Yeah, I think that there's just so much we don't know right now. There's a long winding road ahead of us, and I have no idea what's going to happen there. If you read this decision, it sort of talks about how, you know, Roe versus Wade didn't end the debate on abortion and the country has still been bitterly divided. And it sort of seems to me like you haven't seen anything yet. Right. The country is going to be much more polarized, you know, particularly as people in red states try to stop, quote unquote, their women from going to blue states to get abortions. You know, I've traveled to a lot of countries where abortion is illegal and in practice, you know, what you end up seeing is that the best argument against abortion prohibition is what they look like in practice, right? Because you always end up seeing, um, you know, women being prosecuted, women being hospitalized. Once people sort of see what what this does, it ends up creating momentum for repeal. It's why there has been very few in recent years countries that have rolled back abortion rights and far more countries that have that have liberalized them. But it just it takes a while. I think that eventually the real world ramifications of the end of Roe versus Wade and the passage of total abortion bans in many states, um, people are going to see what that looks like and there's going to be a backlash, but so many people's lives are going to be ruined before that happens. Michelle, Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Jane. Thank you. Michelle Goldberg is a Times Opinion columnist. Jesse Wegman covers the Supreme Court for the Times editorial board. Both have written about this draft decision, and we'll have links in the description. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elise Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon, with original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker and Carol Saburau. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta with editorial support from Christina Samueluski. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Special thanks to Patrick Healy and Jenny Casas.